Hi there, and welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. My name is Patrick Francie, and I'm the CEO of the Real Estate Investment Network. In addition to being a business owner, I'm also a real estate investor, I'm a coach, I'm a husband, I'm a very proud grandfather. And along with that, I'm also committed to stretching beyond what I've already achieved and of living a fulfilled life by continuing to make a positive difference in the world. I invite you to join me to listen in on the Everyday Millionaire podcast as I interview and have conversations with seemingly ordinary individuals who have achieved some pretty extraordinary results, whether it be in their life, in their business, in real estate. And it's here where I'm going to delve into the details of their journey, along with the paths they've traveled to get where they are today and, as importantly, where they intend to go in the future. My guests are here to inspire. They're here to help you learn by talking about what's real for them, both in their wins and in their challenges, from the life and the lifestyle they live to the person they had to become along the way in creating and building their financial futures for themselves and their families. Before I begin this episode, I'll start by first thanking you for listening in and for your support and the feedback you provide us on the show, as well as to ask you to please continue to send your comments, your suggestions, or your questions directly to me at CEO at RainCanada.com. That is CEO at R-E-I-N-Canada.com. And if you're inclined, please share this podcast with your friends, your family, and with people you know, or perhaps even people you don't know. Rate the show and comment on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or whatever platform you happen to use to listen in. And while you're at it, please follow me on the Everyday Millionaire Facebook page. So thanks again for the feedback you provide us. It's definitely appreciated. Okay, let's get on with this show and have a conversation with today's guest. My guest, Moro Puccini, sees today's economic downturn as unfortunately shifting the focus of innovation towards profits at the expense of the people and a greater society that each company serves. In the foreword of his new book, The Human Side of Innovation, PepsiCo's former CEO Indra Nui says, Moro's influence on PepsiCo has been singular. I like to think of PepsiCo's history as unfolding in two stages, before Moro and after Moro. This influence that Moro used to transform PepsiCo and 3M can be summed up by a human-centered philosophy of business, of leadership and design that anyone can learn from this book and actually apply. It's rooted in a very simple truth that great design comes from an earnest desire to make other people happy. Success follows thereafter. In my conversation with Murrow, I found him to be an inspiring storyteller with the skills to weave and draw a clear picture of his passion and inspiration for change that he wants to see in the world by taking responsibility for being the change he wants to see. So with all of that said, let's get this show started. Moro Porcini, welcome to the Everyday Millionaire Podcast. How'd I do on that name pronunciation, by the way? Oh, it was perfect. <laughs> Thank you for having me. <laughs> so it's great to have you on the show. And, uh, you know, we just had a little bit of uh, kind of off-camera pre-record uh, conversation and really excited about this particular conversation. We're going to talk about your book shortly. But, you know, Mauro, before we get into any of that, I always want to start and engage my listeners by saying, when you're asked, 
Moro, what do you do? What's your answer? I mean, you've got such a history and uh, your intro does not, it doesn't do it justice, really. So we're here. What do you do these days, Moro? Well, I'm still trying to explain what I do to my mom after 25 <laughs> years sure. that I started this profession. So I don't have the short answer. And that's really the problem that I think we do have as designers in this business world, because it's a new job, it's a new approach to innovation, to branding. And we're always living there in this limbo, in this lack of definition of what we actually do. What do I do? Well, I like to define myself, my teams, and any designer out there as the ambassadors of the human beings inside the business world. And what I mean with that is that essentially our job is to deeply understand the people we serve, starting with the society out there and the people that buy our products, our brands, or eventually they may buy our products and brands in the future. And understanding their needs, their wants, their frustrations, and try to figure out how to improve the products and brands we already have today on how to invent new ones that can be meaningful to them, that create that can create some form of value, value for them. This value could be of multiple kind. Uh, you know, every time we design something, we in a way or the other touch the life of people. And by touching the life of people, we may do it in a positive way and making the life more convenient, more stylish, more safe, more more uh, easy, more fun, or we may make the life more difficult, more complex, difficult in a variety of different ways and dimensions. So designers that do their job in the right way, they create value in a positive way in the life of people. They touch the life of people in a meaningful and relevant way. And so if you do it that, if you do that, essentially you are adding little fragments of a broader collective happiness into the world, into society, through your solutions, through your products, through your services, through your brands. And this is what designers do in this company. They study people, they transform those insights into solutions, and they push those solutions through and they launch them in the market. They do it with the marketing world, they do it with the R&D world, they do it with a variety of other functions inside the company, but why the other functions are eventually are there thinking about how to grow a business, how to drive a business from A to B and make it successful. Designers are, are these naive kind of people that are there always thinking, how can I create value for people? And by the way, yes, we also need to make money with that. But first, your priority is to create value for the human being. This is what I do for a living. They pay me for doing that. And it's the best gift that the world could have given me, you know, in all these years. Well, I mean, you've got quite the career. I mean, you're award winning and not just a few awards. You've won a number of awards on your journey, uh, particularly with PepsiCo. And then you know, forget about all of the other kind of best of under 40 and over 40 and GQ's kind of man of the year or whatever you were, best dressed guy. That's really cool. It's kind of some fun stuff in all of that. But tell me a little bit about, you know, we hear your passion. I can hear your passion in it. I see how clear and concise you are and being able to describe what it is that, you know, fires you up and lights you up and really uh, kind of inspires you to go ahead and write a book and to share what you've learned and what you're learning with the world in a really powerful way. Now, here's where you are today. But, you know, for my listeners, I like to think about, 
and to dig into what was the journey to get here? You know, I always say seemingly ordinary, achieving extraordinary. And I know that, you know, you're, to me, you're not seemingly ordinary to your circle of influence. You're just a pretty cool moral. You're like, you're just a guy that does what he does and you're inspired to do all those things, but you've achieved some pretty extraordinary results. But take me on a little bit of a journey in terms of how you got, let's just start with your working career. Did you come out of university? Uh, obviously at Italy and you're now in New York and how long you've been in New York. There's so much I want to know about you, Mauro, to where you got here today. But look, let's start even before. Let's start with what really shaped everything. I realized this more recently in the past 10 years, more or less, but it all started like for everybody else with my childhood and my education and that kind of education, that childhood, the role of my parents shaped me for the person that then I became today. I, I grew up in a very humble family in a town one hour away from Milan. This town is called Galarate, a small town. And, and I was living in the house projects, uh, growing up, the four of us, my parents, my brother and I, in one bedroom, we would sleep all together. Uh, and my parents... My father was an architect, but he was in love with art and he would draw every day and paint every day. He was really following his passion. And my mother, she didn't go to college, even though she's an extremely knowledgeable person with a great culture, but she didn't because she didn't have money and, and she didn't to go to work as soon as possible. And she started this journey in the finance world. But at 38, she hated that so much that she left and she dedicated her life to her children. And by the way, it was not an easy decision because we didn't have already enough, a lot of money. And so we, we had to rely on the uh, on the income of my father, that by the way, was an architect, but what he was doing, he was a teacher in high school, you know, with a kind of degree in architecture and doing some projects in architecture here and there. But my mother left uh, the finance world to, to stay close to us, their children, but then she started to follow her passion. Her passion was to write poems, thoughts of any kind. And then later on, 20 years later, when internet arrived, my father and my mother started to self-publish books online, leveraging digital technologies that they were not familiar with at all, but they figured it out because they wanted, they needed more than wanted to express themselves through, you know, first through blog, they build their own blogs. And then later on, they started to self-publish eight books total. Now it's eight books um, with the poems of my mom and the art of my father. And they publish them for themselves. They print them, but they don't expect to sell them to anybody. It's just for them. It's their legacies, for their friends, for their kids, for their family. So here I am. I grew up with these two parents that inspired me with their selfless love for self-expression, essentially, and following their passions. They had two main things that they taught me when I was a kid. The first one was the idea of culture and knowledge, how important it is to know and to learn and to keep learning. For them, their dream, you know, again, coming from a humble family with no connection, no money, nothing, or their dream was for me, one, well, I'll tell you the, the first dream, I'll tell you in a second. The second dream that they had for me was to become a 
professor at the university because it was the highest you know degree of sure. knowledge and culture and learning for them the second thing that was super important for them was that we would all be as a family as individuals good persons good human beings kindness being nice to people and they translated that in the idea of christianity they were super super catholic and so for them it was that later on i understood that everything they were teaching me in that dimension transcend any kind of faith or religion is a universal value of being a nice person and that's where the first dream of my mom was was for me to become a priest and already when i was uh, very young, I I was good at talking, you know, I, I could storytell my way through everything. And so the, the, the idea of my mom and the priest of our neighborhood was actually that I could be an amazing ambassador of Christianity, of this kind of values in the world. But here I am, I grew up with these two pillars in my culture and the idea that actually fame, wealth, money could be a threat to that kind of journey, because it could distract me from being a nice person, from having those kind of values. And this is very interesting because in a world today where people are from, you know, very early on talking about how can I, I can get rich or wealth, uh, wealthy or successful and fame, famous, uh, the reality is that if your goal is just that, if your goal is just the one of becoming rich or the, the one of becoming famous, well, the most of the people out there won't make it. For a simple reason, we can't be, you know, all rich and all famous. And by the way, even when you make it, if you're just that, there is a very high probability you're going to be miserable, unhappy. And in fact, we see many people that are successful from that standpoint, materially successful, that are totally miserable. If instead your goal is what my parents were teaching me, the idea of growing culturally continuously and seeing life as a continuous journey of personal growth and then being nice to yourself, to, to others, to the people around you, well, there is a high probability that you're going to achieve that. And then, yes, well, material success, fame, they're all beautiful. I'm not saying that they're not. But just if there is that foundation behind, you are going to be able to really enjoy with full awareness also that additional added value to your life. So here I am. I start my journey in a way with, with two dreams. I wanted to be either a writer or a painter because I, I, I started to do these things, you know, looking at my parents and, and I realized that Actually, it was good, both at writing and painting. And But then I ended up becoming a designer, almost by coincidence. I, you know, again, I was coming from a family that could, it was a miracle we could afford to, they could afford to send me to university. I could do it just because in Italy, uh, there were very high level universities like Polytechnic of Milan, where I studied design that are public universities, where you can go without paying anything. Uh, and so that's the beauty of that education system. So it was already difficult anyway to send me for five years, not going to work. I had to be maintained by somebody. And yes, of course I was working also by myself, but they needed to do a sacrifice to help me as well. And, but 
after I will get the degree, I needed to find a job right away. And so study art or studying journalism or something to become an author in that time in, in Italy, it would have been difficult to find a stable job that could give me a stable income. And so I started to look at other universities that could give me some more stability. And, and one of those was architecture. Again, there was a little bit of art and creativity in it. I was inspired by, you know, what my brother, my father was doing here and there and by his dream of becoming, you know, a great architect. And, and so I decided to go for it until two weeks before the exam of admission, a friend of mine from high school calls me and he tells me, you know, then in Politecnico, the architecture university, engineering architecture university, they just opened last year a new faculty called design, actually, disegno industriale, industrial design. I was like, wow, I didn't know. So I started to you know, gather some information about it. And I was very intrigued by two things. The word design, there was somehow connecting me to the, the idea of creativity and, 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 and art, and somehow there was that component in it. But then industry was making it very concrete and connected to the industry and to the business. So I was like, okay, it's a new thing. It's somehow blending what I love, art and everything with commerce. Let's try. I did the exam and I I, became, I got first out of thousands of people. So I was like, wow, this must be my journey, you know? And so that's how I started, uh, jumping literally into a void, getting out of my comfort zone, not doing exactly what I wanted to do, but somehow following my intuition, my uh, curiosity or something interesting. And so I tried and by doing that jump, I found something that was amazing. It's the profession I always wanted to do since I was a child, but I didn't know it existed. It's essentially a professional being an inventor, an innovator, creating something new. I'm going to pause here because I could go on 30 more minutes, but this is how everything started. You asked me, you know, from university to where <laughs> you are today, I arrived to university, but I'm going to pause here in case you have any questions. <laughs> well, you, I mean, there's a lot of things to unpack, you know, just in my own curiosity about your journey, because, you know, we think about, or as you just, you shared the insights into your parents, you know, often a question I ask of successful entrepreneurs or just individuals overall, you know, is it nature or is it nurture? You know, and it sounds like it was a combination of both when you really think that your parents allowed that and probably planted those seeds for you and then did what they could to support you in growing that. But at some point, I mean, you're taking on architecture, you're taking on creative design, and that takes intellect. That takes, you know, somebody that's also passionate about it because it's not easy. Now, for you, perhaps it came easy. I would be interested in hearing because, you know, there's a stat that I don't know what it is in Italy, but, you know, in North America, it's it's a, it's outstanding. Like it's like 60% of university students or 60% of students who go to university get a degree, come out of university, and actually don't go to work in that degree. It, it turns out that many of them are getting that degree because it was actually their parents' uh, dream, not theirs. And so there's all sorts of stats. That isn't really relevant to this topic other than to say what you did and what you took on. Uh, if you're in it still to this day, it was because you were really fired up about it, passionate about it. And at some point you, there was a natural kind of 
ability to kind of take it on and see things in a different world. I mean, you see things differently than somebody that would have to force that creativity or actually force being, you know, the, the design and architecture. That's my own observation of architects that I've worked with. And not that I've worked with many, but that's my own observation. But here's a fundamental question for you that you've achieved these amazing results. And when did you think that you started to realize it? What you talked about was your parents in terms of allowing you and planting seeds and what they did and what they inspired you to do. And when did you start to see that you were gravitating or as a kid, were you always that artsy one? As a kid, were you always the one that were looking at the books of, of shapes and architecture or, you know, where was it showing up for you? Or was it literally in university, all of a sudden you find out you're good at something? No, look, in high school, I was doing very, very well. I, I won uh, in the fourth year of high school a prize as one of the best 100 students of Italy. The fifth year, again, the same prize. So just to give you an idea that it, it was not that easy on one side because I would do well in mathematics, in physics, in science, but also in the humanistic um, areas as well. But there was something that for me was not just school and it was fun. And that was drawing or writing. That was fun for me. It was mm -hmm. not a job. Mm -hmm. It was fun. And so I had this dream of doing something that I mentioned. Now, because I was doing so well at school, first of all, my parents, I really need to thank them because they told me, do whatever you want at the end. Zero pressure ever. They just tried to give me some advices. Then they told me, look, you know, you can do whatever you want, but you also need to get out of school and you need to work. So they helped me understanding what was a good compromise in a way or the other. And, and, but then they would give me total freedom. So the fact that anyway, somebody with my background at school would decide in Italy back then not to go to business school or engineering was a big thing. I remember the line of my professors in high school going to my parents and blaming them to waste my talent because they were like, how can you let him do design, send him to business school, send him to engineering? I mean, he has a mind that could do great things there. And my parents were like, no. I mean, and they write about this in the book as well in many different ways. I'll give you another example that was for me was a shock when I was literally a child. My parents were all about self-expression and letting the kid work, you know, out his passion and but also, you know, everything, all kind of expressions. And one of those was that I started to use the pen, the pencil, even before the pen, uh, putting it between two fingers, the, the two central one, instead of like everybody else, the, the index and, yeah. and, and the other finger. So I was, in other words, putting the pen or the pencil in my hands in the wrong way, in a non-normal way. And my parents were like, just do whatever you want. And I was drawing already as a child very, very well, you know, better than the child, the other children of my age. So my parents were like, no, oh, perfect. Express yourself. This is how you want to, you know. And I remember one day my mom coming back at home 
really upset, really stressed and upset, and was really, really young. So the memory is there because of the shock. And I remember essentially my mom saying to my dad that the teacher was blaming her on not really paying attention to her kid and helping her kid, you know, educating her kid in the right way, you know, in the way to to follow the kid in the way you need, you should handle a, a pencil. And this was, you know, the manifestation of, you know, negligence. That was the implicit accusation and challenge to my mom. My mom, that left her work to be close to her kids. It was all about her kids, was accused of that. I used this episode in, uh, in the book to start this reflection. I actually started back then without the awareness there today. But I was thinking, wait a second. I mean, who decided? What is normal? What is the normal way of handling a pencil? Why, if I draw, actually, even better than all the children around me, what I'm doing is wrong? And that's when I started to, without even understanding, obviously, I was a child, but I started to question what is right and what is wrong. And if I do something that is not normal and I achieve better results, why society should normalize what I do. Why, and this is what, you know, now this is the adult now that is thinking about that. And this is just an example, but there are billions of other things that happen in society, especially when we start our journey as children in the society. Society try to normalize us, try to make us all doing the same things, behaving in the same way, thinking in the same way. And if you don't, you're not normal. And in this society, especially today, this is to the extreme. If you have a deficit of attention, you need to take pills because it's not okay not to be, you know, focused. If you do things that are not in the norm, we need to medicate you. We need to assist you. You need, okay. And so we are building a mold for everybody to be the same, to be all the same thing. And why we do that? Well, because in general, society prefer the norm. Society prefer the standard kind of behavior. Society prefer all of that because it's easier to control people in that kind of way. And instead, it's so important to let people express themselves and dream and, you know, really follow your nature. So now going back to the initial question, essentially what happened is that I, in university first and then later on in my job, I was following my passion. I was following what I really, really love to do. And so extreme practice, the nurturing part, at the beginning coming from my parents, but then later on coming from myself, you know, the idea of growing and learning and practicing and spending so much time in getting better and better in that was driven by the love. You know, Goldman in Emotional Intelligence, in this beautiful book in which he defines the idea of emotional intelligence, talk about this, the people that succeed are people that deeply, deeply love what they do for a simple reason, because success requires practice. And if you don't like what you do, if you don't love what you do, you're not going to be in the mood of practicing. So if you're a violinist or you're a designer or you're a business leader, if you don't deeply love what you do, it's going to be very, very hard to have the discipline of the practice because instead of seeing that as just, I said it earlier, wow, the world gave me a gift, pay me for something that for me is just fun. But if you don't see that as fun, you're going to 
you're not gonna love what you do and you're gonna end up doing something else. And this is what you were saying earlier, I'm gonna close. If your parents force you to study something that you don't love, sooner or later you will drop off. I actually wish for you that you're gonna drop off from the university or from your job, or you will follow a different kind of career path because you will be miserable keeping doing something you don't love, considering that that requires a lot of sacrifice and hours anyway invested in that kind of activity, uh, no matter if you love it or not. Well, it's interesting, you know, a lot of what you said, there's so much in there, Moro, and, you know, not the least of which is, you know, as you said, when kids or, well, anyway, it, well, I'll use the term kids for now, you know, work outside of what is considered, you know, the norm, then they're questioned. They're, as, you know, why aren't you in this box? Why aren't you playing in this square that we understand, you know? And, you know, we talk about uh, I, I was once asked a great question by a coach of mine, Dr. John Martini, who said, you know, we hear all of these things about attention deficit disorder and, you know, the ADHD. And, you know, let's look at that what for what it is. It's an attention deficit. And he said, when you give somebody what they love to do, when you give them permission to do what they love to do, all of a sudden they have an attention surplus disorder and they can't get enough of it. And we don't have to, you know, cajole or hammer them to get something done and to work within these boundaries that we have. So it's always an interesting conversation that we go down a path. And, you know, but I think what you said is really interesting in terms of the support that your parents gave you that gave you the permission and the support to work outside of those lines, out of those boundaries that the norms of our schools have seemed to uh, put everybody in. And, and that's a really powerful message, I think, for anybody who's a parent and certainly anybody who's looking at it and looking at life and considering what's going on for me, because you, you know, you really hit it on the head, which is when you're doing what you love to do, and, you know, to be really brilliant at something, even if we use the 10,000 hours rule, whatever that might be, uh, you better love it or you're just grinding every day. And that's not any way to live life. It's just an interesting conversation to go and I, to go down a, a path to go down. But I'm also assuming that in your book, you know, the human side of innovation, that this all plays into your inspiration for writing the book. I mean, you're looking at how people are operating. You come from with a, a corporate experience as well. And so you're seeing perhaps that box and maybe people are forgetting. Give me some insights into, inspired you to write the book. What was the, what was the gap that you kept seeing that you felt you had to fill and draw attention to, to support people in, you know, eliminating that gap? Look, uh, first of all, I have multiple answers to this. First of all, um, you talked about these boxes, and obviously you find these boxes right away in companies of any size, big or small. Sure. You come in and they tell you, okay, this is your job description. This is your silos, your functional silos. You are a marketer. You are an R&D person. You are a designer. And the first challenge that I face when I enter these companies is, the first of all, in many cases, they didn't have the box design. And by the way, they asked me the very first, one of the first experiences in 3M, they asked me to build the box design. So that was very interesting, it was an interesting challenge. But then even when they were asking you to build the box design, they had a very clear idea of what design should be, aesthetic. 
the style of a product, the form of a product. And design instead, in my interpretation, but also in the way the school of design taught me um, uh, what design was, design was much more than form, was much more even than form and function. Design was really about deeply understanding human needs and translating those needs into meaningful products for them, working on three dimensions, the desirability of what you do, so understanding people, the viability of what you do, so creating something that makes sense from a business standpoint, and then the feasibility of what you do, understanding all the technology and manufacturing world and combining the three dimensions to create something that can go to market and arrive into the life of people. So here I am with this kind of background, I go to these companies and these companies are like, well, no, no, you design and you do just work on the aesthetic. And so from the very beginning, I had to challenge the status quo and challenge that box and challenge that label and try to explain these companies that I could do so much more for them. And, and so the way I did it in a successful way, what I realized later on that you know was working is First of all, you give them what they're asking you to do. So they want you to do styling of products, at least give them that. That gives you time. In parallel, you start to ask yourself, what do they really need? Beyond what they're asking me, but mostly beyond what they think I could give them. What, on the base of my background, on the base eventually also my diversity, I was a very diverse kind of person, a designer, a creative inside these business-driven or tech-driven companies, or later on, an, an Italian in an American kind of driven company, a creative in a process kind of driven companies. So what can I offer to them, number one? And two, what do they really need? on the base of what's going on in the world out there, how the world is changing, society is changing. And, and again, how I can combine you know, what I can offer with what they need. And once you realize that, you start to work behind the scenes to give it to them without them asking it. Uh, in, in PepsiCo today, we call it acting as owners. It's the entrepreneurial kind of mindset. It's the idea of, okay, like the philosophers would do, or the children would do, and back once again to the world of children, when they ask you, do this, you ask yourself, why? And when you have the first answer, then you ask yourself, why again? And then why again? And why again? Until you arrive to the root cause of everything. When 3M, the, the, the Minnesota uh, company 3M asked me to join the company as a design coordinator at 27, working on one of the business units of the company in Europe, they were asking me to design certain projects in the specific market, was the consumer market. I started to ask myself, why are they doing that? Well, the market was changing and there were new entrants and new competitors. And why they were entering, what was happening, and what they were leveraging to justify 3M being interested on design. And I realized that the society was changing, competition was changing. There were a variety of forces in act that were moving a different approach to innovation in general and the aesthetic component was just one part of it and so i understood that i needed to drive much more than the aesthetic of the product i needed to drive human-centered innovation in the company i needed to leverage what i learned at school what i could offer to them but to do that 
it was not about the projects. It's not even, it was not even just about the business strategy of the specific business unit. It was also about empowering the business leaders to do it. It was about how the company was rewarding them. Well, how the company was measuring the performance of these people. What were the KPIs? And so I realized that I needed to work with HR and with finance to empower those business leaders to do see things in a different way, to embrace human centricity, to embrace design-driven innovation. So long story short, from being a designer that would work on the next the next style of the next multimedia projector or the next positive dispenser or uh, uh, cleaning tool, I realized that I needed to be a designer of culture. I realized that I needed to work with a variety of different people to change the way the entire company was doing innovation, the way marketing was doing it, R&D was doing it, infusing the design thinking into the genetic code of the organization. Now, I was 27 in the periphery of the American empire, in Italy, that was insignificant from a business standpoint for the global business of this $30 billion corporation. So imagine what a naive dream I had, the one of changing a company from there at 27 in this way. But I always say, and I say in the book, there is a pink page in the book you know, that reminds that with a quote. If you don't have a dream, you will never be able to realize it. We need to think big. We need to dream. And dreams are, by definition, naive. And so this idea of thinking big and dreaming and then analyzing the situation, challenges the status quo, arriving to the root cause, asking yourself why with extreme curiosity and then with great optimism, trying to change the game and having the courage of doing that, this is really, I think, what characterized my journey. And I had the courage early on of saying, you know what? Yes, that's my label. That's my box as a designer in this company. But I think I could do much more leveraging my uniqueness, my diversity as a human being, as a person, as a designer, as an Italian, as a creative. And I realized what were my strengths and also what were my weaknesses. I work on my weaknesses and I leverage my strengths and, and finally succeed in convincing the company there was much more value in leveraging design and design thinking holistically than just by having me as a stylist working on products. I mean, you took on a pretty big task when I consider, you know, when you talk about 3M or you talk about PepsiCo and actually coming in and trying to have a conversation with two behemoths in terms of who they are and how the, the size and the age and talk about shifting culture and supporting or driving change within that culture. You know, when I have conversations on a different scale, because I'm an entrepreneur, I'm a small business owner, I run small teams, I employ, you know, small group, you know, certainly not looking at uh, a billion dollar company by any stretch of the imagination, but ultimately to me, it always comes back, and I've just had this conversation so many times in the past couple of weeks recently, including my own one, one of the businesses I have, one of my own teams. But the point is this, culture and environment are everything, and you have to create the environment for a team to come in, but you also have to get the buy-in culturally of what do we stand for as a culture. And, you know, you're coming into, you know, a 3M or a PepsiCo what kind of challenges did you face? Like in my in my mind, I'm thinking, you know, big, old school, uh, you know, just 
decision-making process might be slow and cumbersome, but that's my story. You know, what, what is, what was it for you when you went into that at 27, lots of energy, got it, you know, being naive is sometimes really awesome because you just, you know, you can make mistakes all over the place and it's kind of expected on, um, you know, but you know, today, as you reflect back on that, you feel number one, that you had a, a, an impact, but firstly, what were some of the challenges that you faced in trying to drive that kind of innovation and be that, uh, and initiate that kind of a change? Look, I, because I was building from scratch a new culture inside 3M, at a certain point, I paused after four or five years and I started to look back and I tried to understand what was working, what was not, what were, what were the common path and patterns in, in what I did. Uh, trying to decodify exactly a playbook to amplify the impact of what I was doing. And that's the playbook that, by the way, later on I, I brought to, uh, to PepsiCo as well. And I identified five phases in that 3M journey uh, that the new design culture went through, but these five phases can be applied to any kind of new culture you're building. It doesn't need to be a design culture. And by the way, this is exactly the conversation I had with Indra Nui, the former CEO of PepsiCo, when she interviewed me for the position of chief design officer of the company. And probably is one of the key reasons, actually, I know is one of the key reasons why she decided to hire a profile that is that was not that obvious for that kind of company. I was an industrial designer coming from the tech world hired in a company is all, is all about brand design and packaging, CPG, in a completely different kind of industry. So there were so many other people that would come from the same industry with high design titles that could be, you know, eventually could have better skills than mine on paper to drive that. But what happened in that room with Indra, what I shared with her, uh, that again, I came up with years earlier. Well, we didn't talk about designing products. We didn't talk about designing brands. We talked about designing culture. What are these five phases to design a different culture in a company? The first one is what I call the denial phase, is when uh, you try to introduce something different, but the company doesn't get it at all. They're like, come on. I mean, the, the photography industry is changing and digital is becoming important. Come on, not really. And that's what happened with Kodak. And Kodak lost the train of digital. Think about Blockbuster. Think about a variety of different companies that didn't understand that they needed to change fast enough. But usually, in the most of the cases, there is somebody in the organization that sooner or later, but right on time, understand that you need to drive a change. This person needs to be the CEO, needs to be an executive at the top of the company for a simple reason, because this person needs to have enough resources and power to ignite the change and to drive the change. Often you have, you know, eventually junior employees that have the intuition that actually the company should change. And often they do because they come with a fresh mind, a different perspective, but they don't have the power to make anything happen, obviously, because they don't have the right position. So it needs to be somebody at the top. But usually it happens because they're there for that reason. They're there to think and to understand where the company is going. And so when they do, they 
starts, they ignite, as I said earlier, they change. In the case of 3M, somebody at the top of the company decided to hire a designer to start experimenting with this thing called design. In the specific case, it was a very safe bet. I mean, you are a 27-year-old designer in Italy. If it fails, nobody's even going to realize. The, the bet of PepsiCo was... Uh, more courageous because they hired me at a very high and visible position. But it was also 10 years later than 3M. The world was different and had a different kind of understanding and perception of design. But long story short, here I am. They hire me in Italy. I take my language. I go to St. Paul, Minnesota, and I start to have all these meetings with these R&D leaders and with these business leaders. And I remember that these meetings were going very well. They were really fantastic. I was there pitching design to them, a new culture of human centricity and a new design culture. And they all get got it. They all understood what I was talking about. So I was so excited. I was like, wow, this is going to be much easier than what I was thinking. They didn't understand design, but now that I explained, they all get it and we can do it. And so I remember going right away to my EV, to my executive sponsor, the EVP of the consumer business, Dr. Mo Rosari, uh, going to his office and looking at Mo and telling Mo, wow, it's really going well. The get what we're trying to push is going to be much easier than what we're thinking. Mo, there was always a very serious man. He was there behind his monogamy desk, you know, huge desk in the quarter, in the big building of the company. He looks at me very serious and he's like, they are all lying to me now. And I go, no, 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 no. I tell you, you know, I was in the room. I'm, they are not lying. I mean, I was there. You are not there. And inside myself, I was thinking, I have a very high EQ. Mo doesn't really know. But, you know, I feel people. I know they are not lying to me. And then he keeps looking at me. And then again, he says, I am telling you that they are all lying to you. And then he goes on explaining with an analogy what he meant. He told me, look, imagine... Then you are in a gallery, in an art gallery, and there are multiple paintings on the wall, and there is one painting specifically that you really, really love. And you have plenty of money in your pockets. What do you do, Mauro? Well, you probably buy it, right? So, Mauro, you are one of those paintings in the wall, in the 3M art gallery. And there is your painting, your you and design, and then there, is, there are many other paintings. And all these business leaders are buying other paintings. They have plenty of money because I know I gave them the budget, you know, more gave them the budget, and they are spending the money in the next HR initiative, in the, in the new plant that they're investing on. They're not spending the money on you, on design. There was a big aha moment for me and something that really changed my professional life for the better because it made me realize, first of all, that it was right. And, and it made me think why that was happening. What was my blind spot? Why I didn't realize by myself? Well, the reason is pretty simple. People don't like to be to disappoint people that they have in front of them with a lot of enthusiasm, with a lot of passion. Or sometimes... They just feel uncomfortable of telling you the truth if it's not the truth you want to hear. Or sometimes they are concerned and afraid of the executive sponsor behind you, the monosari behind you. So they're not going to tell you that they, are, they don't buy into what you're saying. Or sometimes they even send you weak signals about the fact that they are not interested. But we, we love to be loved. We love, and you know, to think that people 
uh, they were liked by people. And so often, even if we have those signals coming from other people, we don't read them. We're blind to them. So long story short, for a reason or for the other, we find ourselves so many times in this kind of situations where we think we're getting traction and we're not at all. I call this phase, the second phase, the phase of hidden rejection. And it's really, really important for anybody trying to change a culture to understand if people is rejecting you. And the most of the time, they will not tell you this in your face. It would be passive aggressive. It would be what somebody called the slow no. And what is the problem there is that you think you're getting traction and you realize that the company is not with you, that the people are not with you when it's late. And this company are not patient. So if you enter and in six months, in one year, in one year and a half, you don't start to deliver results because after six months or after one year, you realize that people were not really with you it may be too late. So what did I do after the meeting with Monozari to figure out how to find the people that were with me and the one that were not? And this is something I did all the time since then. Every time I pitch an idea to somebody, I ask right away commitment from that person. Ideally, an investment, money, resources, people to start a project, worst case scenario, at least a public commitment. You need to expose yourself and tell the world you are with me, you're gonna drive it. Once you do that, the vast majority of the people will drop off. They will tell you, oh, look, I really believe in what you're saying, but it's not really a priority now, but in two months, come back, we'll do. It's always the same story, right? They won't tell you no. They will tell you, well, later on. And, and it's, it's okay. You know, if you think about the curve of adoption of new products of people out there, every time, you know, there is a new product out there, there is a very small percentage of people, if I remember well, around 2.53% of people that are willing to try something before anybody else, the real innovators. And then immediately after, you have the people that follow the early adopters, and that's around 10%, more or less. So the summary of, of both of them is around 12, 13%. The people that er very early on are going to get a new product and jump on it. Everybody else, everybody else will follow later on. This is true for products, and we have data, but it's true also for culture. People, you, if you are trying to change culture, you know that one person out of 10 will be with you. Nine people out of 10 will be against that. They are going to try to protect the status quo. If you're trying to change culture, you have too many people supporting you, ask yourself, am I really innovating first? And if you are, are these people really with me? And so use this technique of putting them in a corner and asking a sacrifice, a commitment to identify what I call the co-conspirators. And this is the key word. When I joined PepsiCo, I mapped the co-conspirators inside the company. I mapped those areas of the company where I could develop proof points as fast as possible, those hanging, low-hanging fruits. And I put them together. So I started to prioritize the projects that were easier to show the value of design with, with the co-conspirators. And this is the third phase, is what I call the occasional leap of faith. 
you take co-conspirators that want to take a leap of faith on you, and you start to be proof points. You start to be the few proof points, and then other people will come. Oh, I love what you did with Pepsi. I want to do it with Montaigne. I want to do it with Lace. And I'm like, yes, I want to do it too. Give me the money. If they commit, you create more proof points. Once you start to have critical mass of proof points, the companies start to realize that this new culture makes a lot of sense. And they're like, wait a second, we don't want to keep it niche. Now we want to scale it up. We really want to extract as much value as possible out of it. That's when you are ready to move to the fourth phase is what I call the quest for confidence. I call it quest for confidence for a reason. Essentially, you're moving from startup mode to scale up mode. You're moving from a bunch of pirates and pioneers trying to change the world to processes and frameworks and scale and therefore risk bigger risk. You're moving from a company understanding more or less that there is value in what you're doing in a company that needs to translate that in the day-to-day, in every single process, in everything the company does. This is why I call it quest for confidence, because it's on one side, it's all about using the right tools and frameworks and processes to scale it up. The problem is that when you do it, often all those processes and tools and frameworks risk to kill intuition, the love, the passion, what made the the startup what it was, the cultural startup what it was. And so you need to protect the love, the intuition from the processes, but you need a process as well. You need the right blend. And therefore, essentially, you need to build inside the organization the confidence that even if you don't have everything defined, because innovation implies risk by definition. And so even cultural innovation implies risk. You need to have the confidence of going on, even if now the risk is big, because we're talking about scale. If you succeed there, then that's the moment you're back, you're back the new culture in the DNA of the company. At that point, you move to the fifth phase, that is what I call the holistic awareness, when really the new culture is printed in the genetic code of the organization. That's the conversation I had with Indra, you know, back then. You know, it's it's so great. You know, I love that conversation, you know, too many years. And I know that you, I've been on the earth long enough to have been, I guess, participated in a number of new initiatives with corporations, aside from my own business as a coach myself, knowing that you, when you get to some of these cor- corporations, they have the big away, uh, weekends for the team. You know, they have these, uh, I guess, they're meant to be inspirational workshops where everybody's going to go do, and we're going to do it all different. And to your point earlier on, which is everybody goes to that talk and that, you know, keynote speaker is just like driving change and innovation. And then they go back to the office and it's like, they're haven't got the environment or the culture to actually initiate any of that change. And the pointy end of the spear to your earlier point, you know, who's the guy that's, who's the person that's driving it? Is it the CEO? Uh, you know, do you have a CEO that's going to actually make these decisions, make the call, get behind it, put money behind it and go other than, and you know, an inspirational speaker coming in spending a one or two day workshop for their senior executives. And then their senior executives are set up to fail as well. So it's, it, it is an interesting dynamic. You know, what, one thing though, you know, and now maybe there are many people listening to us right now this happened to me in the past many times they're thinking oh i don't have the ceo i don't have the edp that is supporting you know what i have in mind well in many situations i didn't have it either 
just to be clear, mm-hmm. because maybe you had somebody at the very beginning place me, you know, like in 3M in that position. But I wanted to do something much bigger than what that person in 3M was asking me to do. And all my life, I always try to do something usually bigger than what anybody was expecting from me. And so when you try to do that, it's not that obvious that the person on the top intuitively, proactively will understand what you can do. And so this is another trick, another advice, and this is something at least that works very well for me. Every time, ask yourself, how can I be, how can I become indispensable for the person in front of me? And this is true for somebody that you could transform in your executive sponsor is true for your peers. They will be indispensable because if, let's say, my world of design, I needed the marketers on board. I needed the R&D organization on board. This is going to be true for the teams you lead because you need them to drive that with you because else your bandwidth is limited. You're not going to be able to change anything by yourself. This is true for anybody surrounding you. And so I always ask myself, how can I make you successful, not me, you successful? And if you, by leveraging what I can offer you. So if I, and to do that, you need empathy. You need a deep understanding of what they do, what drives them, both in their professional position, but also in their private life. For instance, maybe somebody is a CMO in a company, want to become CMO in another company in the future because he doesn't know how to grow there. Or maybe it's somebody that is in a difficult position in a specific moment inside the organization and is trying to prove its value or value. I mean, there are multiple things that happen that transcend specific business goal that a person has. So deeply understanding the ambitions, the goals, the needs, and the wants of the people in front of you and leveraging you know, your know-how to help them be successful, that's very powerful because when you succeed in doing that, you become indispensable. They will want to work with you. And this is how, over the years, I've been building both multiple executive sponsors because I was like, I'm going to make you a star in your position by leveraging design. I identified multiple co-conspirators because I I was like, I'm going to make you a star by leveraging design in your position. And you can share the success. You can, you know, work with people and be like, yes, you are great because you leverage something different and unique and your predecessor, your other, you know, people in in other parts of the organization didn't do it. So this has been a very useful technique. So if you don't have an executive sponsor in your company, but you think that what you think can really drive value, try to understand what is driving somebody that could be your sponsor, what are his goals or her goals, and try to offer them a way to help them in what they're trying to do. A way that is unique, is unexpected, and even if they don't completely trust you, Ask them to try. Tell them, well, let's do an experiment. Let's see how it goes. If these people are smart enough, they will be open to this kind of experiment, at least. If they don't, and if you don't find anybody that's willing to at least have an experiment, it's better you leave and you go somewhere else. Because at the end of the day, 
we are working, we are in this world because we want to be happy. We talked about, you know, the beginning of this conversation about passion and love and doing something that you love. And so if you are in an environment that is totally, totally hostile to what you love and what you're trying to do, it's also important that you understand when is the right, the right time to leave and go somewhere else. I, I love the language that you're choosing, but I think, you know, that co-conspirators, you know, I'll give you a little bit of a, I take it back even further. I think what you just shared is a lesson for anybody who's going into the workforce, even at the youngest age. You know, as a small business owner, I've worked with many young people and my own style is often, uh, you know, taking coach position and having conversation with young staff as we train them. And ultimately, somebody walks in your door one day and says, you know, listen, boss, you know, I need a raise. And, you know, I'm always there and I'm going, you know, well, tell me about that. Why is it that you need a raise? Well, you know something, I moved out from my parents, okay, you, you know, uh, or, uh, you know, I got a new girlfriend or my, or my girlfriend and I or my new wife and I, we need to buy a new car. And so they have all of these reasons that they need to make more money, none of which, of course, has anything to do with making themselves indispensable, you know, and it's a conversation that I've had with so many young people. And I think it's, it's such a powerful uh, approach. And I've said to many of these kids, you know, something and Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to open up the door for you and create an opportunity for you to walk through, which is come to me and share with me how you're going to be more impactful, how you're going to generate more revenue. How are you going to make yourself indispensable to this company, to me, so that I have no choice that when you walk in the door, I go, yes, I do. I have to pay you more money because you've earned it. You deserve it. And I can see it all over the place as opposed to, well, I need to buy a new car. Or, you know, I want to move into a bigger house. None of which really inspires me because it's not about what the business needs and what the team needs. It's about what you need. And it's such a different approach to a conversation. Now you take it and you, of course, expand on that and you introduce it into a whole corporate world, which I love the co-conspirator side of that equation, which is how can you drive others to support you in achieving those goals? How can you engage others to uh, make a difference in the company, make a difference in that environment, that culture, whatever that particular business of that corporation might be? And uh, I think it's such a great message you know, for listeners in whatever you're doing, because we have many entrepreneurs that listen to this particular podcast. And I think if you take it even and step back from it in your own business, whether it be real estate investing or an operational company that you've got, whatever it might be, is to take what you've just shared with us for a while here now and start to apply it every day in what you're doing and how you approach it. I just loved it, by the way. And I just wanted to interrupt long enough to say that, Moro, because it's so, so powerful. I want to throw you a little bit of a curveball, I think. Oh. I don't know if it's a curveball. Oh. But I want to take this conversation <laughs> because, you know, what you're talking about right now, I think, changed dramatically over the past couple of years. You know, over the past few years, three years since COVID and the pandemic. And now we have a different world that many are living into. Uh, many offices aren't going back to the office. Now we're working in a virtual world. Uh, you know, people are work from home, work from anywhere. It's not like, okay, get in your car, spend an hour, whatever, commuting. Here we are. And we have to create an, an environment and a culture that it succeeds differently. Now, 
Have you faced that? Are you facing that? Have you given some thought to it, given how you kind of view the world these days? Well, I think in the extreme tragedy of COVID, um, we received a gift and is a new awareness about the importance of work-life balance and the importance of finding new dimensions in our life to reach our ultimate goal, that is the one of find happiness in, in this journey that we call life. And, and so while we were there and we were working remotely during the pandemic, many people realized that to be happy is not just about working from nine to five when you're lucky or many more hours uh, and dedicating your entire life to death. Uh, you could be effective and create value for your company in a different way and find also time for yourself and for your family for something bigger. In the book, I closed the book talking about how to design happiness. And with theories that are not mine, they come from the human science, from the world of people and, and understanding needs and wants and dreams of people. Uh, but essentially, there are three dimensions of happiness in our life, three steps, three things that we do. The first one is self-expression, is, is realizing yourself, is, is really focusing on you and what you mean in the world. So it's really the search for identity. And often uh, that comes through our job, but not just. The job is one dimension. It should be much more than that, especially considering you know, people eventually don't work and do other things in their life, like, for instance, taking care of families and things like this. The second dimension is when you give something to somebody close to you, your family, your friends, your close community, you give love and you receive love back. But you don't give to receive. It's, very, it's a very selfless act of giving love, but you somehow receive it back simply because <laughs> that's why you call them friends and family and close community. Then there is a third dimension that is bigger than that, is bigger than you, is when you transcend yourself, when you create something, you, you give something to the world without any expectation of getting anything back, and actually you're not getting anything back. It is a purpose you have in life, it could, it could be charity, it could be a mission that you have in your work, outside of your work, in many different dimensions. Now, we are in this world, and we talked about this, you know, extensively uh, today, to reach that kind of happiness. So if the first dimension could be somehow fulfilled with your job, the other two dimensions can be partially fulfilled through your job, for sure. But they need also other spaces, environments to be fulfilled. And so... This idea of hybrid work, this idea of working remotely is giving back the possibility and the opportunity to people to invest time, precious time, in their search for happiness. And if we remember the very reason why humanity, before any of us was born, thousands of years ago, invented the idea of work, was exactly that. We invented the idea of work because we had needs. 
the first needs, the you know, Maslow would be codified them, you know, the, the, the base of the Maslow pyramid is safety and physiological needs, survival, you know, we need to exist, first of all. And then is, is all the world of belonging, self-expression, all the way to transcendence and, and, and tra transcending yourself. And so we invented work to help ourselves fulfill those needs in a more effective way by helping each other in communities that later on we started to call cities. And again, we formalize everything in the idea of work and companies and then later on in brands and what we have today. Over time though, we forgot that work was at the service of our happiness. And instead we started to place people at the service of work. And this is the big shift that we need to understand in society and we need to understand that work is just a platform to serve the happiness of the people out there. And the moment in which we increase the productivity of our companies, and if you think about the productivity of these companies 100 years ago and the one of today is amplified, you know, is, is increasingly amplified, exponentially amplified, well, the surplus of productivity somehow should be given back in some formal way. And, and, and it's being given back over the year. I mean, we work less hours today than 100 years ago. But even just giving back by giving back the time of commuting to people, by giving them the flexibility, if you have 30 minutes space between one meeting and the other, to spend those 30 minutes with your daughter or your son or with your significant other. You know, all of these things are really, really important for society. And by the way, they're going to create better talents, better leaders, better business people that are going to give so much more to your company as well. I do believe in hybrid working. I do believe that combining time by yourself in your environment with the ability then to reconnect with people in the office, to spend time with them, to mentor each other, to celebrate each other, to be inspired by each other is fundamental as well. Uh, so I think COVID built this new awareness now we are struggling to understand exactly how to make it work because it's not easy. And we talk about remote working, about hybrid working, about going back completely to the office. We need to understand exactly what is the right model. And by the way, every job is different. There are jobs that by definition cannot be done remotely, others that can easily be done remotely. My point in everything I'm saying is this, we should put a human being back at the center and is also the point of the book even with our talents if we do it's better for our society but we're also going to create better people more happy that are going to give so much more to our companies we said earlier multiple times that passion love for what you do is indispensable if these people are miserable because they're working too many hours because they don't have space to reach their happiness in other dimensions you're going to get miserable people working for your organization. Even if they work from nine to five or from nine to nine every day, and maybe even the weekends, you want people instead that have the love, they give you the drive and energy to really 
go above and beyond to really change the game, to really drive things forward. Now, this is an element. Obviously, once you have those kind of people, then you need, you need to do many other things. You know, you need to inspire them. You need to excite them. You need to think big. I mean, there are many variables. I don't want to simplify too much here. But for sure, that's a very important element of the equation. You know, you know, and as you say that, I was having the thought, I, I couldn't agree with you more, by the way, and understanding a little bit, you know, in the human psyche and, you know, understanding that we have to be a contribution and that actually out of that contribution comes significance, which is also a part of what we need. And we need to be seen and, and be a contribution. You know, to me, I've always gone by the definition of giving and receiving is exactly the same thing. You know, when you're giving, you're receiving, and of course, vice versa. But, and I, and I love the thought process around the culture, the environment that you're creating, but what shows up for me in that conversation, and that is that you and I can have this conversation and understanding that happiness does not live outside of us. You know, it isn't about another watch or a new car. It isn't about my job. It is actually about the contribution I'm being to that job, the difference that I'm making in the world, the impact that I'm having. I mean, that's all where fulfillment lives. So my question to you is for those who don't understand that, you know, you can easily have a company full of people with a, with a huge amount of staff and team that are just operational, you know, intellects that get shit done. Having that conversation is like, to them is esoteric, it's airy-fairy, it's what the hell are you talking about? You know, this is like, I'll feel good. You know, how do you respond or how do you deal with that should you run into it? Yeah, my my advice is this. I mean, that's what works for me. Embody that kind of behavior, practice it, and show that you are bringing very tangible, very concrete value to the company. I have the luxury of talking about this because design was able to show value to the company. And and the company saw the value of design and doubled down the investment in design and moved from zero people to 315 design centers. So uh, here I am that in the position of talking about what made design successful. But if 10 years ago, I was coming to Pepsi and be like, oh, we all need to be kind, <laughs> in love, optimistic, people would be like, oh, Who the hell is crazy. this guy? Yeah. But I practiced that. I sure. embodied that personally. I was like this. I started to hire people like this. Our team is like this. And if you have, if you talk to our HR organization in PepsiCo, you know, the people working close to us and finance and the business partners and everything, everybody knows we are like this. And, and so once you embody that and you deliver business results that are very practical and very tangible, that's when you can say, okay, this is the behavior and the mindset we use. By the way, this doesn't apply just to these things that sound more exoteric. It applies also to very concrete approaches to businesses, to business that may be perceived, you know, by people an anomaly in what they do every day. You know, here I am and they tell you, well, we should leverage design thinking to drive brand building. And you've been driving brand building in a different way for many, many years. And by the way, in a very successful way, even that, that is much more tangible than talking about love, optimism, and kindness, even that 
is something difficult to pitch. And so the best thing to do, and we go back to the five phases, right? On the third phase, the occasional leap of faith, that's the most important phase, is the key one, is when you build the proof points, is when you practice what you're talking about, is when you demonstrate actually that idea even before even talking about this for real. And, and it, you know, you could talk forever about the value of design thinking to drive change in a company, but people will roll their eyes and will be like, yeah, okay, whatever. The moment you start to show it in projects, that is a completely different kind of situation. And so that's why for me, the identific identification of the co-conspirators and the identification of areas of the business where you can quickly, quickly, and quickly is a keyword, past, show some form of value. It doesn't need to be all the value. It doesn't need to be perfect. Show progress quickly in you know, what you're trying to show, to, to prove. Well, that's really when people will start to listen to you. That's when you can start incrementally, slowly, to introduce the idea of what is driving the difference. But it took years to me to have the credibility to elevate, elevate the conversation to this kind of values that have been there since the beginning of 3M. At that time, it was more intuitive, to be fair. But later on, towards the end of 3M, the beginning of PepsiCo, you were, I was very, very self-aware of this. At the point that I was talking about this uh, in conferences already in 2008, 2009, I wrote a paper about this in 2010 for the Design Management Institute Review. But again, it was easier to talk about this in conferences than to talk about this within the companies. And then step by step, I started to introduce that idea by saying, look, what we did in Pepsi is because of this. What we're doing there is because of this. And then when that became more than a few proof points, but an entire capability, when what we did with that capability is because of this. And, and, and by the way, it needs to be real. We cannot bullshit people. And this is key. You know, it's easier to find interesting ideas and put them in a book and, and maybe people believe you or, or, you know, or pushing these ideas from the academy or, you know, you're coaching people and everything. No matter your role, if you work in university, if you coach, if you are a practitioner in a company, whatever you do, what you preach and preach needs to be authentic. It, you really need to believe in it. You need to practice it yourself embody it. And if you do it and you do it consistently over time, people at a certain point will be like, wow. At the beginning, they will be like, oh, he really believes in what he's talking about. Later on, they will be like, wow, he believes in what he's talking about. And he's also delivering the results. There must be something there. And even if they don't believe you completely, they will respect the fact that there is some form of value in that approach. You know, I love all of what you've just said. I mean, it's so powerful. And of course, you know what, number one, you're so credible in who you are and how you show up because you're obviously passionate about it. You're well-versed in it. You've got a track record that shows that, yeah, you've been putting this to work. You've been plying your trade, if you will, and uh, honing your skills and understanding how you move things forward. And I think that's incredibly powerful, you know, to anybody who's listening to actually start to apply and, and put this to work. I'm sure it's not always been easy by any stretch of the imagination, but when you 
you wrote a book. I mean, it's, I, I don't know how many words your book is, but it's a big, thick, hardcover book. What, what gave you cause? What really drove this? I'm going to write this book. Was it the, you know, did you need to, did you want to show up as the authority, as in the author of that and really drive that? Did you see a gap that you just felt compelled to fill a legacy, all of those things? What was it for you in that regard, Mauro? Well, first of all, and we said it multiple times today, the passion for driving. So that was really mm. the beginning of everything. I always knew I was going to write a book. You know, as I told you at the beginning of this conversation, I want to be a writer, an author. And so, but let's use the same technique I was talking about earlier. Let's ask ourselves why and then why and why. What is the root cause of all of this? If I try to psychanalyze myself, and I did multiple times, also with external help, <laughs> the key reason is my inner desire to storytell, to share, to mentor, to coach. I had this like desire that expressed itself in the way I treat my friends and my significant other and, and now I have a newborn child and I can't wait, you know, to, to play the role with them. I've been always like this. And I had this instinct, instinct of sharing, 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 communicating. And so I do this through many different platforms. Um, very early on, I was, even when I had my own agency before 3M, I would go to universities and beg people to give me space to give lectures to students because I, I love the idea of lecturing and sharing and everything. And then I would get interviews by, you know, being on stage and people and journalists were getting interested in the story or eventually through my networking and, and so a few articles here and there. And, and then I would start to write pieces of books of other people that were asking me contribution to their books. And long story short, this instinct of sharing from an intuition, an instinct, very quickly became a very powerful tool to do what I was doing for different reasons in different ways. First of all, it helped me decodify everything I was doing, my journey, understanding what was working, what it was not, and transforming all of that in stories to share. The moment you add these stories to share, to share, even you yourself will understand those common patterns that make your journey successful or you know what didn't work. And so you will use them as a playbook in what comes next, in you know, everything else. You're doing so that was first of all super powerful for me. So storytelling is a way to build your playbook for the future by understanding what you did in the past. The second thing that happened is that it helped me sharing with the world within these companies and outside of these companies my vision. And that helped me in multiple ways. First of all, it helped me to attract the right talents because I would excite people out there to come to companies. You know, in some cases, they were not design-driven by definition, like 3M at the beginning, Pepsi at the beginning. So why a talented designer would should join those, those companies? But I was storytelling 
you know, what we're doing and, and inspiring people out there in joining the organization, the dream and everything. So that was very powerful as well. This was also giving me the possibility to somehow make clear with the world out there what kind of profile of people I wanted to have. I wrote very early on this list of characteristics of what I call the unicorns, the ideal innovators that I talk about now in the book. But that list has been there for the past 15 years. And then obviously I tweeted and I will be then I pressure tested. And, and today is, you know, a very solid list coming out of experimentation observation uh, for many, many years. But my point is by putting out there what you need, what you want, what you aspire to, you are going to attract people that somehow are aligned with the vision and are embracing mm. the vision. Yes. The other thing that helped me and, uh, is in somehow building my own credibility in inside the companies. So when early on in 3M, here I am, and I start to pitch certain things, but then out there in LinkedIn, in Instagram, in all the social media, I share my ideas. And somehow people outside of the company endorse the ideas, uh, comment on the ideas with enthusiasm, support those ideas. When I do that with customers, I remember at 3M, you know, Target, the Target Corporation was co-located in Minnesota in the Twin Cities with 3M. I got a lot of traction with Target. So Target going back to uh, 3M and be like, wow, we love that kind of approach. The media, past company, fortune, you know, a variety of different business magazines, design magazines, endorsing what I was doing. So all of these helped me building some form of credibility that will give me a different kind of seat at the table, position, voice within the company. Even you call it earlier, authority is not a word that I particularly like, but there was some form of authority. Okay, he knows what he's talking about, but not because in the redesign of the post-it project, the guy, you know, is particularly knowledgeable about that, but because of the top leadership that I tried to build over time and to put out there. By the way, and I close with this, all of this communicating outside has been an amazing way for me to learn and grow. Because the moment you put yourself out there and your knowledge out there and you receive feedback, well... Then open your mind. It changes your perspective. You learn so many things. People pushing back on some ideas. And maybe either you understand that your ideas were simply wrong, or eventually you exercise the ability to justify your ideas, to explain the reason of those ideas, the vision behind those ideas. And that kind of exercise that you do in your social platform, then is something you bring back home and you share with your company. What I share with you today, all of this thinking, I mean, this comes from the practice of talking about this for 20 years or 25 years in every kind of platform, inside a company, my social media, my conversations with my friends, with my partners, in any kind of situation. And by the way, to close the loop, this is all driven by love, by the love for what I do, by the passion that I had since I was a kid, when my mom was dreaming for me to be a priest that would uh, be an ambassador of the values of kindness and being a good person for, you know, the love that I had early on when I was trying to lecture in universities and for everything I did. So this book is somehow the embodiment of all of this. It's a very natural 
a result of that kind of approach, but it's also just one of the many, many platforms that I use to communicate with all the different returns of that investment results that I share with you. Well, you know, and I certainly appreciate that you've shared so much with us today, including your time. There's no doubt about your passion. Uh, you're a brilliant storyteller, and I know that comes with lots of practice, and uh, you've done a brilliant job here today. And as we wind things down, Moro, I like to just have a little bit of fun. I think that I could actually go off on this conversation with you for a lot longer, but it, just with the respect of time. As we wind this down, I do a really kind of just have some fun, what I call some rapid fire questions that are generally not that rapid fire, but we have some fun with them anyways. And so uh, down and dirty, quick and easy. Let's uh, fire off some questions such as what is one book that you're reading other than your own these days that uh, you love to gift or that had a very big impact on your life? That I'm reading right now, Stage Not Age. I made a post recently about this because it's the very first book that I'm reading with my reading glasses. <laughs> and it's interesting because the book is all about the fact that in life, we shouldn't think about age, but we should think about the stage in which we are in our life journey. Mm. You may be 65, and be healthy and full of passion and traveling, experimenting the world, you may be 65 instead with some chronic problem and disease and not able to have that kind of slow, uh, fast pace of life. This is just an example, but this book is all about looking at the uh, 65 plus uh, generation of people and understanding how to look at them, address them, and not just love them in one mega bucket, but understanding that there are different uh, stages of life, no matter what your age is. That's one that I'm reading now, but quickly, the one that I really recommend, The Biography of C. Jobs by Walter Isaacson. Yeah, it was a great book. Yeah. And then Shoes Dog, Pete Nine, the founder of, um, of uh, Nike, and the biography of Richard Branson, both of them, Losing My Virginity, Finding My Virginity. Yeah. Those are few of many others. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I'm going to try this. Uh, what, what did you call it? Stage, Not Age? No, that's what you said. The book that you, what was the name of the book again? I just yeah, wrote it Stage, up. Not Age. Yeah, Stage, Not Age. I'm a year away from 65, but I, I'm going, you know, something. If I would have been, you know, when I was much younger, looking at being 64, I would never have thought that this is what 64 was being like. Cause I don't feel, you know, I, in my brain, I'm, you know, maybe 40. I don't know. I have, I have put an age to it, but anyways, it is an interesting, the aging process is very interesting to observe as an observer, like I am uh, knowing where I'm at. So I'm going to read that book. It's, it sounds really great. Do you have a favorite inspirational quote? Quote. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason is I'm so bad remembering quotes. <laughs> I, I I was always bad making jokes. I mean, I would make a joke all the time, but I don't remember the actual joke if somebody else <laughs> did it. So yeah, I'm really bad. At well, you know something, you're you're wired in a way that you should probably be writing inspirational quotes. <laughs> Do you have a favorite swear word? Well, uh, I, 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 is in Italian is a, is a word that you put here and there is 
is something I don't want to repeat and I'm trying not to repeat anymore <laughs> because now I have a five months old baby and me and my wife were saying, we shouldn't say any of those words anymore. So we're really trying hard. So don't tempt me right now. <laughs> okay. I won't, I won't test you. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the gates? When I arrive at the gates? Okay. Well, thank you for spending your life spreading this idea of love and kindness. Beautiful. Your room, your desk, or your car, what do you clean first, model? Room. Oh, interesting. Do you have a favorite tune or a favorite band that you uh, kind of go to? Well, he's Italian. Uh, he's a guy. His name is Giovanotti, and he's such an amazing talent. And he's also a friend, but he's one of the most famous Italian singers. He's a poet. He's, he's a philosopher. Favorite movie? Uh, breakfast, breakfast at Tiffany. Oh, fantastic. And final question for today, Moro, what are you grateful for? For my daughter, but mostly for the level of awareness that I have today, uh, that is being the result of a journey that, if you look from outside, may look easy and beautiful and this amazing career and everything. But the reality is that was painful in many different ways, as the journey probably of many other people out there. And but it's through that pain uh, that I grew, and 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 so and th through those difficulties and through the struggles, I I better myself progressively. And the person I am today, I feel like in peace. I feel that I reach that kind of awareness. And I, you know, this mission that I have also through the book of spreading this idea of human centricity and love connected to something very tangible, business, innovation. So it's not just esoteric and yes, please, let's do, you know, in a hippie way, let's all be nice to each other. No, no. This is something that can really create value for our society and also for our companies. But the reality is that that connection is something that over time I build and I found in what I was doing. But what really drives me is, is coming from within. And if we could just be nice to each other just because it's good to be nice to each other, that would be just my dream. And hopefully in the future we realize that if by being nice to each other and practicing this idea of love and human centricity. And because we want to build more successful businesses, by practicing it, maybe we'll get addicted to it. And then we won't need business reasons to do it anymore because we just love a different kind of world driven by that kind of idea and values. I love it. Love that value. And Mauro, thank you so much for sharing what you did today. Uh, myself, I'm always grateful for the guests, the opportunity to meet individuals like yourself, seemingly ordinary, that have achieved uh, certainly a lot of extraordinary. Philosophically, I align 100% and share many of the values that you express today. And so it is uh, with much gratitude that I say thank you and uh, look forward to hopefully crossing paths in the future. Good luck with your book. I know that it will do exceptionally well. I'm going to definitely order it as soon as we finish with this particular call. Learned a lot today and uh, gained uh, some confirmation of many things that I also believe in. So it's great to hear from somebody like yourself that uh, 
I'm not so out of whack sometimes. So it's a, it's a great, it's a confirmation bias, I guess, is what we will call that today. So anyways, thank you for your time. Very, very grateful for that. Patrick, thank you for giving me your platform to share my message today. I am the one grateful. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for listening. If you found value in the podcast, please take the time to rate and review and share with others, share with your friends. As it is my goal to always improve and to provide the highest value for you, the listener, if you have any comments, suggestions, or questions you'd like answered, please email me at ceo at raincanada.com. That's ceo at reincanada.com. I look forward to hearing from you. And until next time, Patrick out.